Welcome to Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, activists, authors, theologians, philosophers, scholars, political pundits, and a host of others about their world, their work, and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a conversation that's free-flowing, entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, oftentimes enlightening and informative, and above all else, deeply human. For tuning in to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Lee McIntyre. He's the author of The Scientific Attitude, Defending Science from Denial, Fraud, and Pseudoscience. In this book, McIntyre offers examples that illustrate both scientific success, a reduction in childbed fever in the 19th century, and failure, the flawed discovery of cold fusion in the 20th century. He describes the transformation of medicine from a practice based largely on hunches into a science based on evidence. Considers scientific fraud, examines the positions of ideology driven denialists pseudoscience and skeptics who reject scientific findings and and argues that social science, no less than natural science, should embrace the scientific attitude. It's a fantastic book, and I wanted to have him back on the show to talk about science denial in the age of corona. We had a great conversation, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I give you Lee McIntyre. Lee, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So we are in COVID lockdown. I am kind of like, I'm sure as are many people just going crazy right now, trying to think of like how we imagine life uh, on the other side or if there's another side. But one of the reasons I want to talk with you is you've written, you're a philosopher of science. Your last book was about like scientific method and how people have misconceptions about it. And I wonder, like the thing that scares me today is that we are probably not going to have a vaccine, right? In, in yeah. a year or something. I mean, mumps is four years, right? And, and, and that's the best we've ever done. So we're going to have to balance out things like the economy, things like risks and how we m- move together and the kind of whole hammer dance thing. Do we, you know, we lock down on with, with, with massive outbreaks and then we gradually kind of dance out when the, when the thing wanes. Like, I just wonder, like, is there any hope uh, for us to get to the consent of the governed if we don't understand science? That, that This is what worries me, that we don't have enough shared understanding of science or how it works. Uh, it, it's a problem. I mean, there are always anti-science there are movements. There are always uh, conspiracy theories surrounding any pandemic or big you know, social upheaval. Um, this one in particular, you know, the, the fact that it's worldwide and we've got, you know, as all pandemics are, but we've, we've got all this communication. We're all getting our news so quickly and, you know, we're seeing what goes on uh, all, all around the globe. It feels particularly difficult because all of the disinformation, misinformation keeps getting amplified. And I think that people are not uh, paying enough attention to the science. They There's this whole populist um, rejection of the elites thing that's going on right now. And um, we're we're going to pay the price for that because, as uh, Fauci says, that you know there is going to be a a, uh, a second wave in the fall, and uh, I'm I'm really not sure where this ends. I mean, it hasn't really been that long. I mean, it feels like forever. It feels like ten years, but it's really only been a couple of months. And if we're waiting years for a vaccine, I I really don't know how this is going to go. Right, and that's the challenge. Right, we're, what we're going to have to do is figure out like how we w- what the new normal is and how we deal with people that are that have 
you know, I have pre-existing conditions or the elderly and things like this. And it, 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 it seems like an enormously complex conversation that we're going to have to have. And it seems like the tribalism that plagues our culture is just uh, allergic to complexity, right? So it's it's just, you know, you, you, you look at cable news and people on MSNBC, if you want to open up the country, you hate human life. Uh, if on Fox, if you don't want to open up the country, you hate the country and you want to condemn everyone to death. I mean, it's... It, it's, it strikes me that this is not the tone no. or the kind of conversational context that's going to help us get anywhere. It, it, it's really incredible to me. When this first started, uh, I sort of thought, well, we're all in this together. You know, this would be a moment, you know, like the Challenger disaster where people realize, you know, my gosh, uh, facts matter. You know, you, you, you can't just like you can't have a politician deciding the launch schedule for a uh, space shuttle you know this this is one of those times and it's incredible to me how quickly it's become politicized uh, these uh, uh, the, the protests are going on in, in Michigan in particular the ones where the armed people are taking over the state house that's a particularly worrisome one but I mean they're going on uh, around the country um, and Right now, the, the latest thing is that even wearing a mask has become politicized. There, there was an article in, I think it was today's New York Times, said uh, mask versus unmasked. And, you know, even this is becoming polarized. Even this is becoming politicized. And we're not that far into it. Um, I, I just, I don't know. I don't know how this is, uh, is going to play out. What happens when this gets spun in a couple of months into well, this is a blue state hoax, or, you know, as long as it's just the uh, uh, the liberals who are dying from it, what do we care? That that stuff really worries me, because the it, it's not just the misinformation, the disinformation, it's the lack of humanity. Uh, it, it's the inability to empathize with people, uh, you know, from from the other team. And that, that's really, that's a terrible thing. People are dying. Yeah, it's funny. I had a guy on the podcast last week, Luke Conway, who publishes at the uh, Heterodox Academy blog with Jonathan Haidt. And he did this study that he found like uh, recent research, like this month, like he found that conservatives and liberals do inhabit a different experience of the pandemic uh, until, but he found like, he found that like what changes with conservatives is they're skeptical until they know someone that contracts the virus and then everything changes. And so I wonder just how much of this is like is yeah. is, is exactly experiential. Where once the virus touches you, you you get a little less politicized, and 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 you are in solidarity. And until it does, maybe we're living in the cable news weird kind of eyeglasses. That, that you know, that you bring up an important point. I mean, that doesn't surprise me a bit because what science, what this is really about is about trust. Um, if you are willing to trust the experts, if you're willing to trust the science, if you think that the things that you're seeing on TV are things that could happen to your relatives, that's one thing. But if you think that, uh, you know, this is a hoax or some of the Twitters that I've seen, do you even know anybody who's had COVID? No, you know. Um, so, I mean, that, that's a sense that we're uh, talking about it uh, uh, being uh, being polarized. And it's... Um, I, it doesn't surprise me a bit that people become convinced when they know someone, because that's how people become convinced of anything. If you think about it, if you look at the literature on science denial, the most persuasive thing for people to give up their science denial beliefs is when the, the evidence is presented to them by somebody that they trust. 
by somebody that they have a personal relationship with, that they're engaged with. And I mean, if you think about it, that works for any sort of belief. Um, if if the message comes to us from people that we trust, uh, th- that can make a difference. And so you're right, as the virus gets worse in you know, red state America, as people start everybody starts to know somebody who's died i think that that might be the uh, the change yeah yeah I, I mean i think that's probably I, I wonder how much too that you your own work uh has talked about how i mean in in your most recent book you talk about how when scientists say oh you know to the best of our knowledge or this or that yeah. like, it, it, people like then use that as 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 a hole they can drive a truck through well we're not really certain but I mean, there is a sense, there is a sense, right, in which in which most people, most of the time, trust science more than anything, right? Like people, most of the time, don't go, uh, you know, to the Apple store and go, "Oh my gosh, is my iPhone going to work?" You know, the electronics when the people yeah, that brought us the electron, right. or people don't, you know, people don't get on a plane and think, "Oh my gosh, uh, aeronautical engineers and stuff." Oh, we, you know, people have this unreflective general trust in science until it hits them emotionally on something they're frustrated with or politically. Right. Like, right. like the envir- and, and then all of a sudden we have this amazing capacity to just rewire our whole way of being and do a 180, right? I think that's, I think that's true. I, I call them uh, cafeteria skeptics. They're skeptical about particular things that have been politicized. If it clashes with their ideology or it clashes with their uh, political beliefs, then they'll become skeptical about it. Best example I can give you there is uh, a couple of years ago, I went to the uh, Flat Earth uh, Convention out in uh, Denver, Colorado. Almost everybody flew there. So these folks who were skeptical that you know all the scientists and all the people in NASA are liars and you know what? They even thought that the airline pilots were in on the hoax, that the earth was flat and all the airline pilots knew, but they trusted the airline pilots enough to get on the plane. And they were um, tweeting, uh, you know, on their iPhones, which use satellites, <laughs> you know. So, I mean, just the, the level at which they're willing to question some things, but not others, uh, it really boggles the mind. And it, 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 I think it does have to do with what you were bringing up, and this goes to, to some of my work on uh, misunderstandings of science, the idea of uncertainty. Um, people don't understand, I think, enough that s- uncertainty is a strength of science, not a weakness. It's what enables scientists to be able to say more evidence comes in and then we'll change our mind. Um, you can't have certainty outside deductive logic or math. I mean, that's just not how science works. But you find science deniers saying things like, well, until you can prove that that vaccine is safe, you know, for everybody who takes it, or unless you can prove to me that your model of global uh, global warming is 100% correct, I'm not going to believe it. And yet they'll take enormous leaps of faith on things that they do want to believe. Um, conspiracy theories, great example. All of these people who are attacking the 5G towers, uh, you know, over in England, what possible evidence do they have that this has anything <laughs> to do with coronavirus? But but they don't need evidence for that, right? Because that fits with their view of the world. But the thing that they don't want to believe, they need proof. That kind of a double standard, that kind of, you know, ability to say, um, you know, well, if I don't want to believe it, then I don't 
need uh, no amount of evidence can convince me but if i do want to believe it i don't need any evidence at all that's a, that's a just a fundamental misunderstanding of how science works it's interesting because i had a colleague and friend of yours on the podcast today i mean i don't know i guess it'll probably i don't know which episode will come out first but uh he he and i were talking a little about critical thinking and uh, i was saying remarking that it's interesting we have this weird dance we have to do right faith is the way to knowledge because you have to go, you can't go as a sophomore in college and go into the chemistry lab and say, I'm not going to believe anything in the textbook until I reproduce all the experiments myself, right? And then at the same time, doubt is the way of the truth, right? Because you have to trust, and yet doubt is the only way you sift what you trust, right? And this. Yeah. And then uncertainty is the way to nihilism, right? Like if you, if you, if you are looking for certainty, um, in this life, that's going to lead you to a nihilistic path, right? Because most of the, the great achievements of human society are this careful dance between faith in institutions and in experts and things, and also uh, a critical doubt, right? you know, and, and, there's, it, and it, it takes a kind of intuitive interplay between the two, right? And that's all we've got. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I, I'm, I'm remembering a quotation, kind of, I wish I could quote it verbatim. I just read it this week, and I, of course, I don't remember it exactly, and I don't remember where I read it, but it was something about that the the opposite of faith was not certainty; it was doubt. Or the opposite of faith was not doubt; it was uh, it was certainty. It's this ability to say, "I I know where I don't know." That that's the uh, uh, that's the uh, uh, the problem. You're, you're right. I mean, as anybody who believes in science, they even scientists they're experts in some particular area. They don't know everything, so what they're trusting is the way that the knowledge has been uh, generated. You know, I, I get on a plane, not because I know how a plane works, but because I trust that the people who designed the plane and the people who maintain it, the engineers, the pilots know how it works. Um, so, I mean, you could, I guess you could say that's a, that's a type of faith, but it's, I, I think of faith as being when you don't really have you don't really have evidence that something's true, but you believe it anyway. And and that's not why I get on the plane. I get on the plane because I've had similar experiences where I have trusted scientists and engineers and pilots and it's worked out. And I've seen it, you know, work out for other people. And it and I don't need I don't need certainty to have that belief. I, 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 it doesn't have to be, you know, 100% certain for me to believe something, but I do have to have evidence. I have to have warrant in order for my belief to, to be justified. That's what makes science work. But don't you think too, like, I mean, this is what's interesting. Like, so you have, if you're a science denier uh, or uh, someone that has relative trust in science, you're both getting on the same plane, right? Like, That's and, right. and kind of, and kind of ascending were. to, we probably yeah, right. Were. <laughs> and that's the thing. Isn't there like a schizophrenia to being a science denier in this culture? Because again, every most of the day you trust it uncritically. Like if you're a fundamentalist Christian, you probably trust science more than your Bible most days, it, 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 uncritically and unreflectively. I mean, so like this is a weird kind of almost schizophrenic kind of tendency, right? Because like how can you uh, have any kind of integrated reality if you are um, trusting it? like it's a sacred text and at the same time doing the kind of uh, conspiracy theory science denial, right? I mean, that's ultimately that's got to break down at some point, right? It, it does. I mean, it's, it's breaking down now. One of the most interesting cases I've been following are the anti-vaxxers. 
Um, people uh, on the news, it's been reported quite frequently. You've, you've probably seen it. People are concerned, you know, what will happen even once we get a um, vaccine? Will the anti-vaxxers not take it? But there, there's a, and I mean, that's a legitimate concern. And, you know, we're, we're watching that play out in real time. But there's another aspect to this, which is that anti-vaxxers are motivated by fear. I mean, yes, that you know they're motivated by conspiracy theories and lack of trust and you know et cetera as science scenarios and we can talk about that but the the primary motivation is fear and i think it's one thing especially if you're fed a steady diet of misinformation to think well i you know i know uh, you know i've heard all this about how the mmr vaccine is so dangerous and you know might have all of these side effects but i've never known anybody who had measles and so they're not as afraid of measles but people are afraid of coronavirus and so the thing that i've been reading about that's really quite fascinating are the number of anti-vaxxers who are coming around to saying that they will take the coronavirus vaccine and that why to do me, you think it's people, fascinating why do you why do you think they're afraid? I and mean, that's an interesting thing. Why are they afraid? I mean, is, is it just because of media coverage? I mean, because I mean, because I mean, ultimately the death rate is not astronomical. It's bad, but it's not it's not no. like Ebola or something like that. I mean, like, so, why are people, people afraid? Pe- people are afraid in proportion to the information that they're exposed to. I mean, why are people afraid of vaccines? Why are people afraid of the MMR vaccine? It's because if you go on YouTube and, you know, that's all you look at and you live in a community where your friends are talking about it, you're just, you're inundated with this message constantly. And it, uh, you know, it, it makes you afraid. So, that kind of fear can be manufactured. Now, coronavirus, I think people are right to be afraid of it. Um, but th- there's another aspect of that, too. If you notice, there, I mean, we're still having cases now. People are still dying of it. It's not as high as it was two or three weeks ago in New York City. But I bet if you took a poll and you asked people, you know, uh, um, is coronavirus less dangerous now? You know, something like that. They'd say, oh, oh, yeah, it's it's not as bad as it used to be. Well, that's be- maybe because, and I mean, I'm spitballing it a little bit here, but it seems to me two or three weeks ago, the media were scaring the hell out of us with all of these stories about lack of ventilators, you know, taking you inside the, the hospital, showing you, you know, the, uh, the, the, uh, the funeral homes, et cetera. That scares people. They're, they don't seem to be doing that as much this week, and so maybe people are, are not as scared. My point is, fear can be manipulated by information. It can be, uh, you know, it, you can look at something that's actually true and, you know, be fearful in proportion to, you know, reality. Or you can be afraid uh, based on misinformation. Yeah, it's interesting. I had um, a guy on the podcast about a week and a half ago, Noah Rothman, who's you know works for Commentary Magazine. He's on Meet the Press and you know Bill Maher and stuff. And he said he's a kind of center right, uh, been a Trump critic uh, guy, and he said that if anything in Corona, if, if you're not interrogating your priors, your pre-commitments, right, like um, you, that you're not awake like it basically you're not whether you're left or right if you're not interrogating some of your presuppositions and, and, and able to doubt them right i mean this right. is this is the challenge right because we're all in a place where we need to in, investigate our intellectual pre-commitments and yet we're anxiety ridden and scared so that makes you want to cling to them right and this is i mean it's true isn't this the challenge of how, how do we get out of it 
fear is fear is part of the environment in which we form our beliefs and um and it's it's hard to reason when you're you know when you're afraid of something when you know when you're perceiving risk everywhere so you know if you perceive risk where there um you know the risk is actually low but you know you you think it's uh uh, high it's it's very hard to be to be rational about it um i i don't know i i don't know how we're going to come out of this because i don't think that people are going to get any any better at reasoning and it's you know in the short term and it seems to me that the um the news media are out of balance a little bit um in in terms of you know the the way that that they tell the story. Uh, I think that they, they were right to, you know, show the funeral homes to show what was going on in the hospitals, et cetera, because, you know, we, we needed to, uh, to see that. But, but now as the story starting to drift in another way, I'm seeing an awful lot of coverage of these um, uh, protests, which are actually a very, very small number of people. But again, I think that if you ask people, you know, is this a big danger? People say, oh, you know, yes, it's absolutely a big danger because that's what they're seeing on their television. So and unfortunately, we've also got a political leader in, in Washington who's not basing his decisions on the science and is not, you know, helping us to be rational about it. So it's, it's really easy to make people afraid. And when we're afraid, you know, we, we choose a team, we choose an information source and things, uh, things get worse. I, I honestly, I don't know how we get out of this. And the part that's really got me, um, concern these days is I think it's going to get worse. And I, I don't, it's not that I think that the coronavirus is going to get worse, though it may. It's that now that we've got the coronavirus and the, uh, the, the terrible economic consequences, I think that the political consequences are going to be laid on top of that as we close in on the election. And I just I feel that we're headed down a path that if you look at Hungary and you look at some of the you know, other countries and the way democracies have fallen uh, in, uh, you know, throughout Eastern Europe over the last several years, um, you're, you know, you're connecting some dots here that, you know, armed militias um, already talking about, uh, you know, fears about delaying the election. Uh, These are, these are worrisome signs to me. Now, again, maybe I'm being alarmist. I don't know. Now, I had a woman on the podcast a couple of years ago, Marcy Shore, and she's a, a historian, Eastern European historian at Yale. And she said, um, and her husband, uh, Timothy Snyder, I think, had wrote the book on tyranny. Oh, the little short oh, popular book. Oh, what a terrific so, book! So terrific she said, book. She, uh, yeah. So she, so she says to me, like a couple of years ago, she says, you know, when Trump got elected, uh, my Americanist historian colleagues were like, oh, it's okay. Um, you know, we have resistant, resilient, democratic norms and things like this, and we'll be okay. She said, all my Eastern European colleagues were like, head for the hills, <laughs> because they're right. like, this is how it happens. This One day it's happen. okay. That's right. And the next day it's not. Like, it, 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 and she's like, the, the Eastern European colleagues I have are, are super alarmed. And, the, and, the, and, the, and again, like you, I was just reading an article today where like, there's this document apparently with outlining all Trump's emergency powers. And people are like, we want to see this document. This is weird. Uh, th- this is this is the problem, and uh, I think that people are. Uh, and Tim Snyder wrote a terrific book on tyranny because he. Uh, I remember hearing an interview with him in which he said that during the American election he was over in Europe, uh, and you know he was watching 
um, you know, kind of what, what was happening there and getting kind of getting a preview of what was coming in the, in the U.S. And I think that this road that we're on right now is a very dangerous one. And it's easy to have something that's called normalcy bias to just, you know, we habituate to any situation and we think, well, you know, somebody's coming to save us. It's going to be all right. This is how democracies fall. Um, if we have a an election in November where Trump, uh, let's say Biden wins uh, and Trump refuses to concede, um, I, I don't know what happens next. Uh, do those armed militias get weaponized, you know, for, for something else? Um, it, 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 could, it would be very easy in an environment in which we're already scared about disease and we're already scared about the economy to overlay uh, this political tribal hysteria. And uh, I, I don't see that going well. And isn't the weird thing, I mean, it's so interesting because I think, so first of all, 77% of Republicans in the last poll I saw support the stay-at-home measures, right? So this is, the militia yes. is a minority, right? Like, Abs- a but I mean, tiny minority. And, and, and I was listening to Howard Stern this week and he was saying, he was kind of frustrated with the extreme Trump supporters. And he's like, do you think he'd ever let you into Mar-a-Lago? I, like, that, I mean, yeah. this, is, <laughs> this, is, this is one of these things where like, he kind of, um, marshals a group in the country that are conservative um, culturally. They're not necessarily conservative politically, economically, but they have a cultural conservatism. Yeah. But it's not a huge number. But like, but this is the thing, right? And you're talking about the media coverage, right? Then you see it, and all of a sudden we're assuming that this is half the country, which it's not. And 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 these the media myths, right, are like, well, preclude us from critical thinking. It, it's important to remember he's Trump is using those groups, but they're also using him. Yeah, so yeah. Some, some of those are pre-existing groups of white supremacists, of you know um, radicals of various stripes who have been waiting for enough political chaos to get their message out. And so you know the the group, the the, the anti-lockdown groups have been infiltrated. With, um, you know, people with with anti-vaxxers, you know, with um, with white nationalists, white supremacists, you know, with others who are, you know, waiting for a moment to, to put their agenda forward. So it's it's not just all top down. Some of it's bottom up and some of it's, you know, that they're they're now getting the media attention and. And it's quite a uh, it's quite a scary thing because, like Tim Snyder and some others, I'm I'm looking at history and you know looking down the road and thinking, if something bad happens, are we going to look back on this and say, well, of course the warning signs were there. Why didn't we see this coming? The, the story that really got my attention the other day was in Michigan when the armed protesters took over the Michigan State House and kept the legislature from meeting. That's a that, I think that's a that's a very scary moment. Uh, With automatic weapons, like, I, how do you even do that? Like, how, how do you have it's an automatic weapon or semi-automatic can, weapon? As, long as you show the weapon, they're they're not automatic weapons. They're uh, uh, they're, uh, uh, they're semi-automatic, right? They're sem- semi-automatic. But I saw one picture of a guy in a subway restaurant with a. Uh, a grenade launcher or missile launchers, you know, something, a bazooka, something on his back that, you know, looked like it wasn't a gun. It was a, it was a, uh, a launcher, you know, for something. So it's, uh, it's sort of, uh, sort of amazing. 
So this is the thing that worries me, right? And and you're a guy, you're you know a philosopher of science, you keep up in the literature. So just like calm my anxiety, okay? Or or maybe not, or maybe maybe, maybe not. More. Maybe not. <laughs> so like I I read this article last week that uh, I found I was floored by. It. Like there were 332 workers in a Missouri meatpacking plant that tested um, positive and they were not symptomatic and. You know, we don't know if they're pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic. The thing that like is 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 it keeps me up at night, or at least, at least you know, intellectually, existentially, is like, can we have typhoid Marys? Is there a possibility that there are all these people that have the virus that will never become symptomatic and yet are infecting everybody? And and it it seems like we don't know the answer to that question. And and without the answer to that question, how could we open? How could we move forward at all? Right? I mean, because we. we because if, okay, maybe people will stay home finally when they're sick. Yeah. But if you don't feel sick and you go and infect everyone in the office, I mean, this is the thing that seems like the nightmare scenario to me. It, it is because we we don't um, we don't know. Uh, you know, it, it looks like some people are able to spread the virus with having no symptoms, and so how you know how do you know? Um, there, there are a couple of things going on here that, that might make you feel better. One is that... All right, talk to me, talk if, to me. If more people actually have had it, then you know we know because we've had such a poor testing program, then that means that we're actually close, to, that, that the death rate is actually much lower than it's reported on the news. And it means that um, you know the, 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 the denominator is different than we, uh, you know, than we think it is, and which means that we're one step closer to herd immunity. I think herd immunity is at something like 70, 80 percent. And I mean, I, I would hate to think I, we're, we're not anywhere even close to that in, in terms of the official uh, records. But um, it does mean that at least that the virus is less deadly than we think. And a- another way of looking at the same thing is there's something in um, – uh, the cognitive bias literature called the police chief's fallacy. And the police chief's fallacy is that if you ask a police chief, you know, is a gun in the home dangerous? They'll say, oh, absolutely. Every time, you know, we go out for a, you know, for a call, you know, a gun call at a home, somebody's dead. Well, but that's when they get called. Yeah. That's when they get called. They, they don't get called when the gun doesn't go off. They don't get called when the, the, uh, homeowner uses the gun to scare off a burglar, and then you know they don't bother to to call. So um, one thing that, and and again, this also ramps up fear, is that we're hearing the stories and we're seeing the people who are dying of coronavirus, and we're not hearing and seeing the stories about the people who had it and don't know that they got it. Because how do you tell that story? And so if it actually does turn out when they get the testing going and they figure it out that many, many more people have had it than we've thought and that it's much less deadly than we think, it's still a horrible tragedy. And, you know, all those people have died and, you know, we could have prevented it if we'd handled it better from the beginning, et cetera. But it it at least means that it's not um, quite the uh, as worrisome as it might be if you know, uh, we, you know, we're we're just on the first loop of the roller coaster. I, I have a friend who just told me that she found out that you know, she tested positive for the antibody for coronavirus. She was ecstatic because she'd already had it, so now she didn't have to worry about it anymore. And you know, there's a sense in which 
you know, if we find out through testing that many more people in the U.S. have had it or in the world have had it, uh, we might begin to feel the same way because it just puts us a little closer to the day when this is over, vaccine or not. But isn't the problem, though, like, I, I mean, I've heard stories like where people like in South Korea, and again, the testing stuff is ambiguous. And so, you know, yeah. these are all like known unknown problems, right? Like, right. But like people that got the virus and were symptomatic, recovered, and then they tested them and they tested positive for the virus. And so are they infecting people? I mean, these are, th- this yeah. is the weird thing to me. We, or, we, we just, we just don't know. And it, it, there's, it, there's so many different possibilities for that. Yeah, you're, you're right. These are the, the known unknowns, right? Um, so there, there's so many different possibilities of how that might go. Um, how do we know that the virus isn't going to mutate? How do we know that it, just because you've had it doesn't mean that you can't get it again? How do we know that there aren't different versions of it? Um, this is just, um, it, you know, in, until until we get more information about it, you know, these sort of uncertainty uh, matters or, you know, keep people up at night. Do you just walk around going, like, with all your book, all your research, your books, like on promoting the need to trust science and to understand it? Do you just walk around going, I don't mean to say I told you so, but everybody, I told you so? Because it's almost like a stress test at the cardiologist, right? We're learning our whole infrastructure and culture is not wired to protect us from something like this. And it could have protected us. Like, we could have done things yeah. differently, right? It's it's not quite time for I, for I told you so yet, but uh, when... I did reflect on a moment um, in the last year as I've been out touring and you know talking about the book in uh, various cities with the groups and the Q and A afterward, and um, you know p- people like a little hope at the end, and especially when the cameras are on, you know I want to give them a little a little hope. I remember one time in particular the camera was off, and somebody said, um, you know. How, how does this end? What do you think is going to happen in you know 2020 leading up to the election? And uh, and, and now I wish it had been on tape because I you know I'd like to be able to be backed <laughs> up on this. But what I said was, um, I think we're headed for a crisis. That you know I think we're headed for a crisis in the uh, the uh, eight to six months before uh, the election. There's going to be some sort of a hard check from reality, and Trump's going to try to spin it. And I, I remember distinctly saying this, but you know it's not on tape, so I so I can't prove it. So how do you know I'm not making it up? But you know this is a that was as close as I ever got to to I told you so because I don't want to say that I don't want to I don't want to be right. I want people to um, take science seriously and to trust scientists. And my new book, the one that I'm writing right now, uh, I'm making the argument that we all have a role in engaging with people who don't believe in science and engaging with those anti-vaxxers and the flat earthers to try to help them to you know understand that they can trust science and the only way they're going to get that message is if we engage them if we befriend them if we build up some trust with them otherwise it's just going to be more silos more disinformation more tribalism and i i fear for where that takes us don't you? I mean, this is one of the things I think a lot of your kind of average 
science critics are religious. And I, this kind of blows me away in the sense of, I think, I mean, there's lots of intellectuals who've argued that without the Judeo-Christian tradition, I mean, that really helped science along because it demythologized things and helped people understand that like things like contingency and, and you can, you can actually, you know, we're not captive to the water sprites and this and that. Like, so this Judeo-Christian tradition has actually helped science a lot. And I mean, how do you, I mean, how do you tell a story? Is there a way to tell the story in which religious people that are anti-science and reactionary could could develop a scientific piety? Because I, I I often think my my you know full disclosure I'm a religious person. I I often think wow I mean th- this is the beauty of uh, science is is you know I think of that Ben Franklin T-shirt beer is a uh, beer is proof that God loves us. <laughs> There's a good God who loves us. I feel that way about science. Right, the capacity to even do science. Yeah. Almost enhances my religious faith in the sense of, gosh, there's got to be some source at the heart of the universe because uh, amidst all of the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, there are there is order and there is a beauty and there are things we can learn and discover that connect us to the beauty and transcendence of this whole reality we live in, right? I mean, it, like, how do you? I mean, and look and look at what the human mind can do. If you think that humans were created by God, look at how wonderful science is is, and reason is proof of what the human mind can do and all the technology and the fruits of success that that have come from it. I'm not sure I agree with the premise that most science deniers are religious. Some are. Um, the uh, intelligent designers, you know, the, the folks, the, the anti-evolutionists, that tends to skew conservative. That also tends to skew um, uh, fundamentalist. Um, the flat earthers that I met out in Colorado, uh, very much so. Um, now, there are secular flat earthers, but there's a very strong vibe of uh, fundamentalist uh, Christianity uh, behind flat earth. And I have to say that doesn't that's not a slur against uh, uh, fundamentalist Christians. It's just to say that it's not to say that if you're a fundamentalist Christian, you're a flat earther. It's to say that if you're a flat earther, you're more likely to be uh, to be a Christian. Um, but there are other ones that I can think of um, where I'm not sure that it has to do with uh, that, that the ideology behind it is religious. It, it can be more economic or political. Um, I'm not convinced and maybe i haven't looked at the statistics on this that that climate change uh is uh, climate change denial is primarily a function of um uh the uh, religion uh, i'm not convinced that to gmo denial uh you know uh, is uh, is that way so you know uh, anti-vaxxers uh, i i i mean maybe uh, I'd, again i'd have to look at the statistics so in my most recent book, The Scientific Attitude, um, I'm making the argument that what's really special about science is the idea that scientists care about evidence and that they're willing to change their mind about their theories based on new evidence. And that's really the direct opposite of ideological thinking, right? It's not this idea that I know what I want to be true and I've got to fit all my other beliefs around it. It's this idea that I could be wrong about my beliefs, and I'm willing to change them with compelling evidence. That, that's what I think is, is so special about, about science, and where that's threatened by religion, politics, or other sorts of ideologies, that, that's, I think, a danger. But I think that it's, as you point out, there are many scientists who are religious. It's, it's perfectly possible for somebody to uh, believe in God, 
or is perfectly possible I mean, for somebody. Pope Francis was a chemical engineer. Exactly. Exactly. Galileo. Uh, I often tell people that you know Galileo, his his uh, um, his the Galilean principle was not just to protect science from religion, but to protect religion from science. He His biggest complaint in his later years when he was under house arrest is that he couldn't go to church. This was really, you know, a, a, a horrible thing for him. So it's, I don't see those as being um, necessarily in conflict. Now, when I was at the Flat Earth Conference, <laughs> there were people who quoted the Bible as an authoritative source in physics, um, as against you know the theory of gravity you know other other things that you know scientists believe um you can certainly make the argument that they're misinterpreting the bible that the bible doesn't take a stand on flat earth but i think that there are many people who use their religious beliefs to you know pull in um uh, religion as a source for you know maybe these other things that they want to believe for other reasons so just because somebody is religious that doesn't necessarily mean that that's why you know, they, they have the particular belief that they do, uh, extra religious beliefs. I mean, it's funny. I, I have this like personal, like, um, belief statement. I don't know when I developed it, but I, it's, if Augustine and Nietzsche agree on anything, it has to be true. And so I think that, that Augustine and Nietzsche both knew that we're creatures of the will and the heart. Like the heart had, like Pascal said, that you know, the heart has reason that reason doesn't understand. And that is the amazing thing about science, right? Because it is, it's, it's almost counterintuitive in that it, it, it puts, intention that I want to believe with a kind of critical inquiry that's just so hard for us because we are just so wired to want to see what we want to see, right? And I mean, we're, I mean, th this is the amazing thing about late modern it life. We, we are in a place where like, because of the scientific method and the development of science, we're actually in a place where like, we have had unprecedented cultural development and blessings because of something that it developed that like is so counterintuitive to everything cross-culturally. Most humans just see what they, we see what we want to see and believe what we want to believe. Right. And, 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 and if we are not willing to ever change it, when it say when that belief is about an empirical topic and we're not willing to change it, then that means that we've given up science. Um, I was just reading something the other day about uh, a debate between, uh, I think his name is Ken Ham, the, the fellow down at the uh, Creationist Museum in Kentucky, having a debate with uh, Bill Nye, the science guy. And somebody asked them, you know, gentlemen, what would it take to change your mind? And Bill Nye was quite specific about what it would take to change his mind. And Mr. Ham said, nothing could change my mind. Absolutely nothing. I have faith. That I'm uh, that I'm correct, and no matter what evidence you you know you showed me, it was on the subject of evolution. I will not change my mind. See, he's given up on science. No, no scientist could say that. And I mean, he's defining faith in such a, a a narrow sense to say it's this commitment to believe no matter what the facts show you. So you know, if you had faith that you weren't falling out of an airplane, but all of your senses told you that you were falling out of the airplane. That's not going to stop you from, you know, hitting the ground at the at the bottom. You know, the reality can check your belief. But short of that, um, people can take their uh, ideological commitments quite far in denying things that are right in front of their face. I think, too, also, I watched that debate with those two guys, and I thought, man, uh, can, um, Bill Nye could have used 
some philosophical help because I think Ken Ham <laughs> at several points really strategically employed rhetorical and philosophical sleight of hand. And I think that it, it, this strikes me as a weakness of people that are scientific um, spokespeople that they, 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 sometimes they just don't know enough about philosophy. And so like, so they often get outwitted or outsmarted because somebody has an armchair 101 knowledge of like college philosophy and rhetoric. And, and the science defender is kind of overconfident on just on empiricism and reality and science. And I'm just going to assert it. Like, I mean, I think, I mean, why don't you, we need you to run a tutorial for Bill Nye. Well, uh, I, I, I'm writing. Uh, thank you. Uh, he 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 does he does pretty well. Um, when I went to the Flat Earth Convention, my goal was not to talk about science. I wasn't going to talk about evidence. I wasn't going to talk about physics because that had been around for twenty three hundred years, and they didn't believe it. And the the mantra in my head was, you don't convince somebody who doesn't believe in evidence by giving them more evidence. I mean, it's just it's not going to work. So my goal in going in there was to engage their belief structure, how they came to their belief. I wanted to use philosophy you know, on them. And so I borrowed that question. It's really a question from Karl Popper, the great philosopher of science. What would it take you know, to prove you wrong? So I met many flat earthers who, although they were um, uh, Christian people, said, my belief in flat earth is not based on faith. And so I took them at their word and said, okay, if it's not based on faith, it has to be based on evidence. So tell me what evidence, if I had it, would convince you. And they they gave a very different answer than what Mr. Ham gave. Uh, they, for one thing, looked shocked that anybody would even ask them that question because they'd never really thought about it before. And, uh, you know, seemed to me, and there was one fellow that I, I took him out to dinner. We talked for two hours over dinner and went over the various things that he said that would convince him. Every time I had him pinned down, uh, what would convince him? He backed out of it. He found a conspiracy. He found some uncertainty. He cherry-picked something to get him out of it, where by the end, um, even though he hadn't said it, I was uh, I was sure that nothing would actually convince wasn't him. Wasn't this the guy? I remember this from our last conversation. Wasn't, wasn't this the guy that, like, what if we flew to the North Pole or whatever? Yes. We were and he was like, wow, wow, the, the pilot was in on it. What if we flew to Antarctica? Oh, it was it, worse it, than all that. A conspiracy. It was worse than that. The conspiracy was, I said, why don't we fly over Antarctica? Because he thought Antarctica was not a continent, but a mountain range spread around the, the circumference of the earth that kept the water from falling off. And I said, no, Antarctica is a continent. He, why don't we fly over it? And he said, well, there aren't any flights over Antarctica. And I, out of my back pocket, I said, what about this flight? And we we agreed to take a flight over Antarctica, and then he backed off, saying, "Would you have done that? Would you have actually gotten on the plane with the guy, or no?" I would, I absolutely would. What does that but cost? What is that? What is it? Six hundred eight. It was something like that. I mean, I would have crowdfunded it. Uh, you know, all my my science buddies, and I was going to pay for his ticket too. But the, uh, what I pinned him down to say before we went that we needed a criteria, and the criteria was. Um, we had to refuel the plane, right? If he was right, then Antarctica was 20,000 miles long and we'd have to stop to refuel. And if I was right, it was about a thousand miles long and we wouldn't have to stop to refuel. And that's when, I don't know if you remember our earlier conversation, but that's when he took it back and said no, because he thought that the entire history of air travel might have been a hoax um, and no plane ever needed to refuel. And then I said, are you telling me that you think that 
you know, the entire airline industry since before we were born was set up as a hoax against the day when I would convince you to fly over Antarctica. And he said, yes. I want that guy as my defense attorney if I'm in trouble. I mean, that's good. I mean, that is good. I mean, that's who you want, right? This is, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. I mean, that is. Yeah, he he really, um, he, it, it was, uh, it, it was it was quite something, and I mean, in some ways, that could have been the end of the conversation. But but we went on. We talked for a long time after that. As a, I mean, there was a sense he was a smart guy, and I think there was a sense there that he knew he was in trouble. <laughs> he knew that that was a bad thing for him to say, but he had to say it. You know, just in the same way that is it Ken Ham? Is that what the fellow's name is? Yeah, 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 yeah. Ken, Australian, that, it, charming it, guy. It, it's the same for the same reason that Ken Ham had to say no evidence could possibly convince me because ultimately yeah. he was not going to give up that position. Yeah. 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 So do you, like, so right now, like if, if you are thinking about Corona and the United States and the way the landscape is playing out, do you think we are going to be at the end of this more trusting of science or are we going to, is it going to take, push us in the other direction because of the tribalism? Cause it seems like the partisanship, like, is that going to like, is this going to make or break science? Um, I hope it doesn't break science. I think that science is resilient, but only if we care about it enough to defend it. Um, wh- what I'm, I'm going to make a prediction, which is a dangerous thing to do because you're recording the program. I think that our hard correction from reality is still to come. Um, this idea that, uh, you know, the coronavirus was going to be it. And, you know, all of a sudden, you know, all of these people were going to understand, you know, the, the, importance of science and we were all going to uh, you know obey what dr fauci and the rest of the team said um it just doesn't look like it's going to come true i think we've got more correction from reality to come the, the example here that i use sometimes to, to make this point the analogy is uh the challenger disaster um all of these politicians were involved in the decision to send the challenger up when it shouldn't have gone up on that day and then when it crashed there was this commission that included Richard Feynman, who was a Nobel Prize winning physicist, to you know discover why this had happened. And they found out why it had happened. It was this politically motivated launch schedule. The, the, the shuttle was not ready to go up. And Feynman said something very important. He said, for a successful technology, uh, reality has to take place over public relations because nature can't be fooled. Well, mm. you, you might think we're in that spot now with the coronavirus, but and we should be, but I don't think we are yet. I think there's more correction from reality to come. I hope it's not more deaths from coronavirus. Uh, I, I hope it's not, you know, armed insurrection. I, I don't know what it's going to be, but I don't, the way this is looking to me with the fragmentation, the isolation, the misinformation, I don't think that people are going to just one day decide to trust science. And it can either be that we build an army of people who care about science and go out and, you know, try to engage people on the other side and try to convince them. That's what I'm advocating in my book. But the other way that it so happens, basically you want the science people to behind be behind the Jehovah's Witnesses at the door. So they they pitch you the Jehovah's Witness thing, and then you pitch science. <laughs> I, I I want I want thousands of Bill Nye's out there because my big beef is that we don't have enough scientists publicly standing up for science. They say, "Oh, these people are dumb. There's no sense talking to them." Well, you know what? They've got representation in Congress. They're they're in some ways winning. And we really need to get out there and engage. And scientists 
scientists have to stop treating science deniers like they're just their misinformed colleagues and you just give them the facts and they're going to come around. That's not how it's done. You, you have to engage. I mean, many, many people have to engage with them and to help them to, uh, to get over this. And it's, um, it's not, it's, it's not easy. I mean, it's not easy to convince somebody to give up their belief. What, one of my very favorite stories along these lines, it might be one that I, that I told you last time, was about uh, Jim Bridenstine, the director of NASA. Um, he was a, a, a rock rib Republican uh, a, a, a climate change denier. He was in Congress. And he gave this speech on the floor of Congress about um, uh, you know, how climate change wasn't real. And then Trump appointed him to head NASA. A few months later, Bridenstine changed his mind on climate change, just a complete 180. And the reason, and and came out publicly and said he was wrong and that he now believed in climate change. And so something like that really gets my attention. You know, how did that happen? And the answer is because he started to talk to the um, uh, scientists. He started to talk to the people um, at NASA who helped him, the, the people who engaged him. Um, uh, I've got to uh, click on, yeah. Um, so he, you know, he began to uh, meet with the people that he was supervising, and all of a sudden he wasn't just getting the information from a book. He was getting it from people that he began to trust. That's how people actually change their mind. They hear the evidence from people that they trust, and right now there's no trust. How do you build trust? Face-to-face. Now, this is my problem. We're all locked down. We can't go face-to-face right now. Yeah, we, yeah. Can't, we can't engage people, but we've got to find ways to engage. It's, uh, this, is, this is why I do what I do, why I went to Flat Earth. Uh, I went up to uh, rural Pennsylvania to meet with um, uh, uh, coal miners to talk about climate change. Uh, you know, I, I want to engage with people who deny science. Uh, to talk to them. By the way, what I found in Pennsylvania interesting, the coal miners I met with, they believed in climate change. They weren't climate change deniers. So that that was that was interesting. Uh, I shouldn't have had a preconception about what I was going to find. Lee, I wish um, your tribe would increase because I think we are, you know, not just we're in an acute, <laughs> intense time where we need your tribe to increase, but also in the long term. I agree. Like this is working you know, on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I appreciate it. And so I'm just, you know, I'll keep having you on. I appreciate you coming back, and uh, I just appreciate your work. So keep, um, keep uh, fighting the good fight. I'd, I'd rather do, I'd rather do it through talk than, to, you know, to wait for some sort of a disaster where we get that challenger level hard correction from reality, and then, you know, and, and there's been a tragedy. That's 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 what I worry about. It 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 really it bothers me to see people rejecting the thing that could save us. Yeah. And I hope, uh, I hope your tribe increases because I think uh, we, we need you and we need science. So thanks for spending Thank some time coming back on the show. I always enjoy talking to you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. If you like what you've heard here, please do a few things for me. Go share about this episode in iTunes, write a review, give it a rating, share the love and goodness. Or go on social media, share a link to the episode on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Please pass along the love and goodness if you've experienced it here. Thanks again. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Give and Take. And until next time, friends, fare thee well.